Phil Calloway writes about one sleepy Sunday afternoon. He was with his five-year-old son. They drove past the cemetery together. And he noticed his son did a large pile of dirt beside a newly excavated grave. And his son pointed and said, look, dad, one got out. (laughs) So here's what I want you to think about. What if one got out? What does that mean? Philip Yancey writes a story about his childhood. He says, we never had cats, though. Not until we moved to Ellenwood. An aunt in Philadelphia had let cats, scores of them, run wild in her row house. And there, my mother had required a deep aversion for cats. But finally, our first year in Ellenwood, mother relented. We got a six-week-old kitten, solid black except for white boots on each of her legs. As if she had daintily stepped in a shallow dish of paint, could she have any name but Boots? Never was so much loving attention devoted to a kitten, he says. My brother and I resolved to raise a pet so unblemished that our mother would desire a houseful of such sublime creatures. Boots lived in a cardboard box on the screen porch and slept on a pillow stuffed with cedar shavings. Forbidden to bring her inside the house, we spent most waking hours on that porch, and mother insisted that Boots must learn to defend herself before venturing into the huge outdoors, fixing a firm date of Easter Sunday for the kitten's first foray outdoors. Um, When that Easter Sunday arrived, Yancey says, uh, the unthinkable happened. As they ventured out into the yard with Boots and watched Boots play about the sunny backyard, the neighbor kids came over to join them in their play, and unbeknownst to any of them, their uh, little terrier named Pugs followed them. And let's just say that was Boots, the kitten's last foray in the sunshine in the backyard. Yancey says of that event, he says, I could, I could not have articulated it at that time, but what I learned that Easter under the noonday sun was the ugly word irreversible. All afternoon, he says, I prayed for a miracle. Or, or maybe the whole morning could somehow be erased, rewound, and played over again, minus that horrid scene. We could keep Boots on the screen porch forever, never allowing her outside. Or we could talk our neighbors into building a fence for pugs. A thousand schemes ran through my mind over the next days until the reality finally won over, and I accepted at last that Boots was dead, irreversibly dead. He moves on and says, after years of urban living had ground down my childhood love of nature, I found it suddenly rekindled through my friendship with a young photographer named Bob McQuilkin. He says, I was working as a magazine editor at the time, and Bob seemed determined to drag me out of my stale routine and reintroduce me to the joyous world outside. He says, once Bob drove his Jeep to my office, insisted that I come to see two baby owls he'd just rescued. For months, he says, he fussed over those scraggly orphaned owls, chasing barn mice and lizards to feed them, then trying to teach them to hunt on their own and to fly. Bob teaching a bird to fly. He said they'd flutter in soaking wet from a rainstorm, not wise enough yet to find shelter, and Bob would patiently pull out his electric hairdryer and blow them dry. He says, Bob was as fully alive as anyone I have ever known, and so when I heard that Bob had died in a scuba diving assignment in Lake Michigan. 
I could hardly absorb the news. Bob, dead? It was inconceivable. I could picture Bob doing anything at all, anything but lying still. But that is my last image of him, a 36-year-old body in a blue plaid flannel shirt lying in a casket. I would never ski with Bob again, never sit with him for hours viewing slides, never again eat rattlesnake meat or buffalo burgers at his house. Susan, his widow, asked me to speak at Bob's memorial service. He says, without a doubt, it was the hardest thing I've ever done. When I stood before them, all the magazine editors and art directors and family and neighbors and friends, he said, they reminded me of little birds like Bob's owls with their mouths open, begging for food, begging for words of solace, for hope. What, what could I offer them? He says, I began by telling them what I had been doing the very afternoon Bob was making his last dive. He says, that Wednesday I was sitting oblivious in a cafe at the University of Chicago reading The Quest for Beauty by Rollo May. In that book, the famous therapist recalls scenes from his lifelong search for beauty. Among them, a visit to the peninsula of Greece with a series of monasteries attached to it. One morning, Rollo May happened to stumble upon the celebration of Greek Orthodox Easter, the tail end of a church service that had been proceeding literally all night long. Incense hung in the air, and the only light came from candles. And at the height of that service, the priest gave everyone present three Easter eggs, wonderfully decorated and wrapped in a veil. And he declared, Christ is risen. And each person there, including Rollo May, responded according to custom, He is risen indeed. Rollo May writes, I was seized then by a moment of spiritual reality. What would it mean for our world if he had truly risen? Yancey says, I read Rollo May's question the afternoon that Bob died, and it kept floating around in my mind, hauntingly after I heard the news. What did it mean for our world that Christ had risen? At Bob McQuilkin's funeral, he says, I rephrased Rollo May's question in terms of our own grief. What would it mean for us if Bob was raised again? We were sitting in a chapel, Numbed by three days of grief and sadness, the weight of death bearing down on us, what would it be like to walk outside to the parking lot and there, to our utter astonishment, find Bob? Bob. With his bounding walk and his crooked grin and his clear gray eyes. What would it mean for our world that Christ had risen? What if it gets reversed? What if death gets reversed? What if, what if the circumstances change? What if one gets out? What if my phone would ring this afternoon and it was my dad, my deceased dad, and we could talk again, like we used to talk about that oil leak on my truck. What if it gets reversed one day? It's something 
that as Christians we don't think enough about. It's pretty much confined to one season of the year, Easter, unless somebody we love happens to die. It's something we don't think about enough. It's, thinking, it's something we don't think deeply enough about or perhaps carefully enough about because it is, as Paul's going to teach us today in 1 Corinthians 15, so very important to think carefully and rightly about the resurrection. As was their pattern back in the church in Corinth, they did not. We pick up on that in verse 12 of chapter 15 in 1 Corinthians. Paul says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? Evidently, some in the church in Corinth were denying the hope of the resurrection of the body, the physical body. I don't know that they were necessarily denying that there was, there was any kind of afterlife, but they were denying that our bodies could be raised from the dead like Christ. And honestly, if you think about it just for a little bit, that's a tough sell. Even as brilliant a theologian as John Calvin would admit it, he says, it's difficult to believe that bodies when consumed with rottenness, will at length be raised up in their season. This was perhaps doubly difficult for someone from a Greek culture. Um, they did not believe in the resurrection of the body at all. They typically believed in the immortality of the soul, not the resurrection of the body. The body was weakness and evil and sin, and death was welcomed as the soul being liberated from the body in much Greek thought. But our great and final hope is not just some disembodied afterlife where our spirits float about. It is the resurrection and the transformation of our bodies, just like Jesus, just like Jesus. And, and Paul writes about this in a number of places. Romans chapter 8, he says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we await for adoption as sons and the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we were saved. He would say in Philippians chapter 3 that our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to himself. We believe in the resurrection of the body to eternal life. And getting this straight matters more than we might think. Listen to what Paul goes on to say to the church in Corinth as a part of their denial of this. He says, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, 
then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So Paul says, if you say there's no resurrection of the body, then you're saying Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised bodily, he says, then our faith unravels. He says, the apostolic preaching of the gospel was in vain. Our faith as a result is in vain. He says, me and all the apostles, we're liars because we misrepresented God on this matter. Your faith is in vain, verse 17, and you are still in your sins if Christ is not raised. Those who have died, no hope. They've just perished. And we are to be pitied for believing such a lie. Not that the Christian life is a life of abject misery and woefulness and pitiable, but that because we have believed in a lie and made great sacrifices because of that lie, we are to be pitied. So you see, Paul says, the stakes are very high based on what you believe and that you believe in the resurrection. There are those today around us who deny it. Jehovah Witnesses, for example, believe in a resurrection, but not a resurrection of the body. They believe that Christ rose not in flesh and blood, but he rose as some kind of invisible spirit, perhaps the archangel Michael even. One writer says that one-third of the Church of England's bishops do not believe in the virgin birth or Christ's bodily resurrection. One-third. One of their former bishops uh, from Durham, David Jenkins, claims that the resurrection of Christ is just a trick, a conjuring trick with bones. This, however, is our clear, sure, vital hope, the death of of death in the bodily resurrection of Christ and ultimately of all who belong to him. Paul says it this way. He says, in fact, verse 20, Christ has been raised from the dead. Paul is stating it as a certainty. Christ has been raised indeed. And as a result, everything that we just read about, the consequences if the resurrection didn't happen, could be turned on their head. Because it did happen. The apostolic preaching was not in vain. It was true. Our faith is not in vain. It's spot on. It's absolutely true. Paul and all the apostles have spoken to us not falsehoods about God, but the truth about God. Their teaching has been validated. And we are free from our sins because Christ has risen from the dead. Don't pity us. We are living the life, the life of the resurrected Christ. Okay. He goes on. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Fallen asleep is a euphemism for believers who have died. 
For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Christ here is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. That is, his resurrection is akin to a down payment on our resurrection. As sure as his resurrection happened, ours will happen. Just, Paul says, as sure as it is that everyone who is in Adam, that is, born a man or a woman, will sin, it's that sure that all who are in Christ will rise. He is not saying here that everyone will rise. But as you'll see in the next verse, it is everyone who belongs to Christ who will rise in the resurrection from the dead. For you to have the hope of resurrection from the dead depends upon one thing. Do you believe Christ's gospel? Do you trust Christ's gospel? You remember, we learned it last week. It's very simple. It comes from verse 3 of this chapter. Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised on the third day. That's the gospel. Do you believe that you have sinned and that Christ died not for his own sins but for yours, that he actually was buried and he raised on the third day? If you believe that, if you believe that life-shaping truth, if you'll trust in those life-saving acts, then you have the hope of the resurrection. You have the hope of the gospel. Paul continues. He says in verse 23, but each in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, the implication is Christ is raised, and then when he returns, all who belong to him will be raised. Then comes the end, when he, Christ, delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. So there is an order to the unfolding of our future hope. It began with Christ's resurrection. Next is Christ's return. And at his return... The bodies of all believers shall be raised. Paul writes about this elsewhere in 1 Thessalonians 4. He says, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will Rise first. So at his coming, the dead in Christ will be raised. And then Paul says in verse 24, the end will come. The end of the story will come. You're going to learn about this either, I don't know, you learn about it today or is it next week, restoration in your life change class? I think it may be ne next week. Next week. Thank you. We have one attentive life change guy out there. He's, a, he's, 
He's in charge of life change. Um, <laughs> next week, this is what you're going to learn in your, in your life change class at 9 o'clock, your adult class. Restoration of all things. Everything will be restored to the way that it was supposed to be. And those who trust in Jesus will get to enjoy eternity in the new heaven and the new earth. Christ is going to deliver the kingdom to his Father. And every God-opposing rule and authority and power is going to be destroyed. The last of those powers is death and the defeat of death. The death of death, we could say, comes when Christ raises the bodies of those who belong to him from the dead. Okay. This is our great hope. Resurrection from the dead and life everlasting with Christ. Now, if you're thinking about this, you may be thinking, so what happens should I die before Christ comes back? They take my body down, put it in Oakwood Cemetery. What happens? Where am I until Christ comes back? Because if my body is not raised until the return of Christ, what's going on? Um, this is a state that is sometimes called by theologians the intermediate state. What happens between, for, for believers who have died and yet we wait the return of Christ? Um, and some have suggested a kind of sleep, soul sleep they call it during this time, where we simply sleep until Christ returns. But the difficulty of that is there are scriptures that talk about us being immediately with Christ when we die. Famously, Jesus is on the cross in conversation with one of the thieves being crucified with him. You remember this? The thief says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And what does Jesus say? Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Today you will be with me in paradise. So we know a couple of things. We know that upon death, we are with Christ, and it's grand. It's paradise. We don't know exactly what that looks like. N.T. Wright, a British theologian, has tried to blend these ideas and says that paradise is the blissful garden where believers rest with Christ between death and the resurrection. Be that as it may, we don't know very many details about this time, but the critical piece we do know is that we are with Christ and it's paradise. Okay. But the focus of Scripture and the fullness of our hope is on the resurrection and what follows, life everlasting in the new heaven and the new earth. All of this is set in motion with surety by Christ's own bodily resurrection. He's the first fruits the down payment of it all. And since Christ has, in fact, been raised, Paul says, then all of this is made sure. It's all going to come to pass. Back in our passage, verse 27, he says, God has put all things in subjection under his feet. That's Christ's feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it's plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him, under Christ. So in other words, he's saying Christ, the Father is not in subjection to the Son. 
says, when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. And though the language is kind of confusing when you read it first, the idea is that here we see the full lordship of Christ coming into play, unrestricted. He's going to rule fully over all of creation. And then he is going to submit himself. He's going to deliver the kingdom back to the Father, and he is going to, he is going to subject himself to the Father gladly and willingly. So this, we have a glimpse into how the Trinity works, the way the Father and Son relate to each other. The Son, fully God, just like the Father, in happy subjection to the Father. And we saw a couple weeks ago in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, this is the pattern for our marriages. It comes out of the way the Son happily subjects Himself to the Father in the Trinity. This beautiful, co-equal, happy subjection that goes on. And Paul has a couple more endorsements for the reality of the resurrection for us both Christ's and our resurrection. And the first one, I'll warn you, it's weird, all right? Paul says, otherwise, if Christ had not been raised, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? A very good question. Um, if the dead are not raised at all, why are people being baptized on their behalf? A very good question. Um, one of the commentators said there are at least 40 different ideas about what this means, that someone's being baptized for people who are dead, okay? Here at North Wake, we don't baptize anybody for dead people. We, we don't do this. And honestly, I have no idea what was going on there. Let me give you a couple options just for, the, for those of you who want to be preoccupied through the rest of the sermon. Um, some people say that people had become Christians but had died before they could be baptized. And so Christians were being baptized in their stead to testify that they really did know and love Jesus. Okay? That has some problems with it. Um, some would say they were being baptized in the name of apostles who had died who had brought the gospel to them. Kind of an honorary thing. That has some problems, too. Um, probably the simplest understanding and the most troubling one is that people were actually being baptized for people who had died with the hope that it would lead to their, them having a resurrection hope. Okay. And that's just weird on a number of avenues. That's just not Christian thinking. Okay. In Paul's day, it was actually pagan, a pagan practice in a nearby city, evidently. In our day, this is a Mormon practice. The Mormons, um, if you wonder why they do such excellent genealogical work, it's because they do baptisms for those who have died to afford them an opportunity to respond to the gospel after they're dead. Now, this is muddled and confusing and unchristian on a number of fronts. It's contrary to the relationship between baptism and salvation and the relationship between salvation and faith prior to death that the Scriptures are very, very clear about. So, as I said, we don't do this here. Okay? We, don't, we don't practice this. Another explanation could be, as I said, the pagans did this. 
in a nearby city in one of the mystery religions. They baptized for the dead. And it may be, Paul doesn't say who is doing the baptizing here. It may be that he's actually referencing a pagan practice and saying even the pagan practice of baptism for the dead wouldn't make any sense unless there was resurrection. Even they understand that there's some kind of resurrection. Having said all that, we don't know exactly what Paul's talking about. He didn't condemn it. He didn't endorse it. He just used it to say that if we're not raised from the dead, then this practice is nonsense. And honestly, any kind of baptism, even authentic New Testament baptism, is nonsense if there's no resurrection. Think about the symbols when we go out to the lake and someone's baptized. They're placed under the water as a testimony that they believe in Christ's death and burial. And the benefits of that have come to them. They are brought up out of the water. It's always our practice to bring them up out of the water because it testifies to what? The resurrection. Okay. See, if Christ's not raised, baptism is goofy. Um, even, especially, a baptism for the dead, which is goofy anyway. Um, so Paul is just saying that if you think it's nonsense, it's really nonsense if there's no resurrection. Baptism of any kind really makes absolutely no sense. He has one, one other reason that he says, I want you to know why I think, why you should believe in the resurrection. He says, why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. It's a reference to his great suffering. He says, what do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Paul's point is, why would I suffer so for a lie? And if it ain't true, he says, then party like there's no tomorrow. Grab for all the gusto you can. Whatever beer commercial slogan you want to embrace, that's what you should do. Because those are rooted in no resurrection hope. That's their message. Live for today. Because there is no certainty about tomorrow. But there's a logical corollary I want you to realize. He says, if it's not true, then just be a hedonist, pleasure seeker. We could say, if it is true, then it's worth the greatest of sacrifices. And, and Paul says that himself. Romans 8, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us. It's a good investment, suffering now for future glory. In 2 Corinthians 4, he says, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. It's worth it. It's worth it. If the resurrection is true, to suffer for the gospel is worth it. Are you living like you believe in the resurrection? He says there's two two paths here. The one is the hedonistic pleasure seeker, and the other is someone, as we'll see in a minute, who's willing to stop sinning and make sacrifices in light of the resurrection. Which describes your life best? That's the next few verses. He says, don't be deceived. 
Bad company ruins good morals. That is, somebody who teaches um, there's no resurrection is going to devastate you. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning. The resurrection is the antidote to sin. For it says, some have no knowledge of God, and I say this to your shame. Some do not know that there is a God of love and power who offers us hope beyond the grave. We're living like pagans. He says, that's to your shame. Beware, Paul says. Be free. Wolfhart Pannenberg, a theologian with a great name. You're, you're about to have a son, Wolfhart. What a name. Wolfhart Williams. It just has a great ring to it. Um, this is what he says. This is really, really insightful. He says, the evidence for Jesus' resurrection is so strong that nobody would question it except for two things. First, it's a very unusual event, somebody raising from the dead. And secondly, if you believe it happened, you have to change the way you live. Have you changed the way you live? Are you living each day like you believe in the resurrection? Are you enduring suffering and sacrifice like you believe in the resurrection? Are you stopping sinning like you believe in the resurrection? Perhaps for some of us, the starting point for response to this message is simply to repent of living like there's no resurrection, of living just like somebody with no hope beyond the grave, of letting the resurrection, the hope of the resurrection become peripheral when it's supposed to be central. Let's pray together. Lord, forgive us once again our disordered lives when that which matters most has been forgotten or marginalized by us or just disregarded. Um, Lord, we are to be bearers of hope to our friends and neighbors and even to the nations. Make it so in us first. Give us great unshakable faith in the bodily resurrection of Jesus and the hope, the sure hope of our own. As we face um, a hard life every day, some of us, as we face the temptation to pleasure-seeking every day, some of us, Lord, free us to live out the resurrection hope every day. We ask this in the risen Christ's name, Jesus. Amen. If you'll stand, we're going to worship the risen Christ in song. And if God's been prompting you about your own belief in the resurrection and you want to come down here.